33. And before we get there, I think I've got a few announcements. We will not have youth tonight. Uh, we will resume again next week on Sunday night from 5 to 7. And then um, trying to think of something else. Are there other announcements? This Wednesday is the last night for the ladies' Bible study. And then uh, one other thing. So after service, uh, when I'm finally done yammering, and we celebrate communion, and then we sing the last song, um, I want to encourage you. So Shane and Emily, uh, they're known as Arbor Season, and they sell t-shirts wherever they go. They asked. They didn't want to sell t-shirts if we weren't cool with that. It's not about that. I actually told them they could set up their merch table up here, and they didn't want to do that, okay? So, but one way that we can support them is they get ready to go out on the road again, and actually they're getting ready to put together a worship album uh, one way you can support them is they're going to sell t-shirts on their really cool retro hippie bus that's out in the parking lot. And so um, if you want to go check out their bus, Shane loves to show off the bus because most of it, it's his handiwork and Google and other people that have helped him. So it's really cool. Um, but also um, you can go buy a t-shirt. They might have CDs. I, I don't know exactly what they have, but go check it out. So um, That being said, as you arrive in Genesis chapter 33 this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. And so the title is, Are You Resurrected or Are You Rotten? And depending on the day, for me, I could be one or the other. And so, um, but as we look at the life of Jacob, I've shared with you many times that I actually relate more to Jacob than I do to a lot of the, the people in the Bible. But in Genesis, so far, we've seen Abraham, we've seen Isaac, and then the son of Isaac is Jacob, and then he had a twin brother, Esau. But we find out in the scriptures that they were twins in nothing other than they were born at the same time. Uh, they, were, they were not identical twins. Uh, they were not physically identical. They were not uh, identical in, in what they, you know, their, their attitudes or their, their personality. And so as we look at Jacob and Esau, 20 years before today's passage, Jacob was sent away by his mother to a place called Padan Aram, where his mom was from, Rebekah. And while he is there, he meets the woman of his dreams and wants to marry her. And then through a sequence of events that are pretty uncanny, he ends up with two wives and their servants and children from all four women. So if, if you've missed any of that, uh, go back and read it. Uh, if you think your family life is a little bit abnormal, uh, I, I think you should read the Bible more because our lives are pretty uh, mundane, if you ask me. Um, but Jacob, by God's grace, has these children who are actually a fulfillment of God saying, I'm going to make your descendants Abraham and then Isaac, and then Jacob. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the sands on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. And as I give you these descendants, I'm going to be with you where you go. And then he told Jacob very specifically, I'm going to bring you back from the land of Padan Aram, and I'm going to bring you back safely to the land of your father's promise. Now, the land that he would be coming back to would be Israel. And guess who's there at the border waiting for him? His brother, Esau, who 20 years ago, by the way, wanted to kill him. And so, oh, I'm going to go off. I'm going to get a wife. 
and you're going to bring me back safely. So are you going to kill my brother? Are you going to completely change him? Or is he going to be so off, off, far off the map that he doesn't know that I'm coming? Am I going to sneak in? All these things have to be in Jacob's mind. But as he comes back, in Genesis 32, what we find is that he's very concerned about this reuniting with his family. He did not look forward to family reunions, probably like many of you don't. And as he's coming back, there's a whole chapter from last week in chapter 32 where it's all about him anticipating what's going to happen. And he stacks up all these animals. He, um, he, he actually gets so hard down on his luck that he prays. And he says, Lord, what are you going to do? And he wrestles, it seems, with God. And while he's wrestling with God, he's, he's exerting his own force and trying to get his will done. And I think if you look at Jacob's, Jacob's life, that was a lot of his life, trying to scheme, trying to plot, trying to appease people. And yet at the end of it, God touches his socket hip and dislocates it so that he will no longer be the same Jacob. He'll be too weak to do anything else in his own strength, which as believers, by the way, that's a blessing. It's a blessing to be made so weak that you can't do things on your own anymore because when you can do things on your own, you create more problems than you think, uh, not only in your life, but in the lives of those that are affected by you. And so he weakens Jacob to bless Jacob. And that seems impossible, right? But being weak, Paul the Apostle would later write that in our weakness, God's strength is made complete. And so as we arrive in this chapter, Jacob is forever changed. He, ha- he walks with a limp now. And as he walks with a limp, he enters into this land and he enters into this reconciling with his brother and it's not what he thought it was. In chapter 32, we find out that as he's approaching the land, that his spies go out and go, hey, Esau's coming too, or his servants, and Esau has 400 men with them. Now Jacob, knowing that Esau wanted to kill him, is going, "Uh, he's going to come kill me and all my family with 400 soldiers. But what we find out in this week's chapter is that the 400 people are actually meant to be helpful. Uh, Jacob's been journeying. Esau wants to make amends. And then he actually wants to help him during the last leg of his journey. No pun intended. He's had his hip sock. Get it? Come on. So that's all I got. I'm sorry. So in chapter 33, it begins with Jacob says, Now Jacob lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he gets back to his plan from chapter 32. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front. We're getting ready to see who he loves the most. Okay, maidservants and children that I'm okay with, you guys go up front. That way, if it goes bad, I still got the wife I really love, which is Rachel. And then he puts forth, um, it says, in front, Leah and her children behind them, Rachel and Joseph last. And then he crossed over before them. And look at this. He bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. 
The fear of man is a powerful thing. And he approaches his brother humbly. But I want you to remember in chapter 32, when he wrestled God, he would not let go of God. There was, there was not humility. There was this straining and striving with him until he finally, instead of humbling himself, God humbled him. But here it says that he bows down to the ground seven times. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him. And Esau could run because he hadn't experienced what Jacob had experienced. And he embraced him. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you, Jacob? And so Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now, I want you to notice this. Every time that Esau asks a question about Jacob, Jacob says, it's God's grace that... that I, remember, when Jacob left the land, he left with a staff in his hand. That was it. He didn't have any other people with him. He didn't have any sheep or goats. It was just him and his walking stick. And now he's crossing back over into the land of Israel. And when he crosses over, he's got wives and family, and herds, which in that day was wealth. It was a bank account along with the family he had. And so as he comes back, it says there, who are these with you? And he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Grace is something that I don't think we quite understand. He recognized it. He's saying, these are the the children and the wives that God has by his grace given me. I didn't earn them. I don't deserve them. This is just what God has wrought. This is what he has done. And so this is an earmark in Jacob's life. He recognizes that the grace of God is with him. And so verse 6, the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And then Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they humbled themselves. They bowed before Esau. So he approaches with humility. He, he approaches with his brokenness exposed. He's, he's limping. He bows seven times. Esau runs to him with tears and kisses, which by the way, if you've ever had somebody that wants to murder you, that is not the way you expected to be greeted. You expect to be greeted with at least a sarcastic, what are you doing here? But that's not what he receives. The only reason that this man who wanted to off him can possibly speak to him this way is that God graciously has changed his heart. Now, I'm not going to say that he's redeemed because the New Testament teaches that Esau never repented. He never got right with God. But what we see here is that Jacob has God's favor. And so Esau, when a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord or a woman's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so here we have this. Now, who are these children? They're the children whom God has graciously given to me. And they all bow. Now, 
Jacob, by the way, did not have to bow down to Esau. Jacob is a servant of the Most High God. He's a prince. He's a member of the kingdom of God. There's no need for him to bow to any man. And I have that quote there for you. If you kneel before God, you can stand before anyone. And I put it this way from James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you in due time. He will lift you up. You don't need to fear man. And so, continuing on in verse 8, Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Interesting, because Jacob has just noted that everything that he has is by the grace of God. It's been freely given to him. And so Jacob, yes, he's still part of his own ways. He's still trying to appease those who are his enemies. But at the same time, he's only offering freely what he's been freely given. And it's almost as if, if you read Jacob's response to Esau, he says, These are the, this is the increase that God has graciously given me. But if you look at Esau's response, you see a response that the world gives. I don't need your charity. I don't need what God's grace has provided you. I am self-sufficient. I have enough. I am enough. That's what we say to God, by the way, when we compare our works to what he's given. Well, I've done more good than I've done sin. And so, God, you've obviously, I've tipped the scale, so my good works outweigh my bad works, so you should accept me. But what the Bible teaches is that we cannot do enough good works. In Isaiah, it actually says that our good works are as filthy rags. And if you know the, the Hebrew, it's a little PG-13. It means uh, uh, women's garments that they use to, during their menstrual period. That's how filthy. It's, I, I don't even want to say it because it's gross, right? It's not, nobody talks about this. We call them feminine products, right? Praise the Lord for that, by the way. Um, anyway, so as repulsed as you would be if someone saw that or if you saw that. Now, picture how God, if he calls our works, our good works, our righteousness, he says those to him in his sight are as filthy rags. So when we say, I've done more good than bad, we're offering up to him something that's as disgusting to him as that would be to you and I. It seems like a good thing to go, well, I'm going to do good things for God and then he'll accept me. Right? Jacob's offering to his brother the, the increase of his labor, this, these flocks. And to Esau, he's like, I, eh, I don't need anything. I don't need that from you. I am self-sufficient. And so um, Esau says, I have enough. So here we have verse 10. Jacob said, no, please. If I have now find, found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God. And you were pleased with me. 
Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt, here it is again, graciously with me. And because I have enough. And so he urged him and Esau took it. What's interesting is this is not much different than what God has called us to do as believers. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, You might remember this passage. Jesus is instructing his disciples and he's getting ready to send them out uh, to heal the sick and and do all kinds of miracles in his name and to preach the gospel. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and he commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are the descendants of Jacob whom we're reading about today. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. This power that God's given me, I'm giving it to you. You've received it freely. Now go do this for others free of charge. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, for a worker is worthy of his food. I'm going to send you out with nothing, guys. And I want you to use what I have given you to be a blessing. And then through that, you're going to preach the kingdom to those that you go to speak to. Has anything changed? Not really. He's given us his Holy Spirit to do the same thing. This is a proof of the resurrection. And so, verse 12, he continues and says, Esau said, let us take our journey. So they've had the reunion, but the whole point of the journey was to go home. Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. I'll lead you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which you're nursing with are with me, and if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. So please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau says, come with me. Let's take this last leg of the journey. And as we do, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to be a help to you. I'm going to help you travel. It's a very nice gesture. Again, considering he wanted to kill him 20 years ago. Not only is he hugging him, not only is he weeping with him, but he's accepting gifts from him. And now he's offering to help Jacob. Now, at first glance, this is awesome. Together again, after all this time. And, but at the same time, what he's offering is to lead him to a place called Seir. It's a mountain that's in the region of Edom. It's not in the land of Israel. And so, verse 15, Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Jacob says, no, it's okay. We, don't, we can't go as fast as you guys. And so he's trying to back out graciously. He's trying to avoid the in, inherent 
awkward position that Esau's putting him in. Because he's not supposed to go to Seir. He's supposed to go to Bethel, the house of God. He's supposed to go into the land of Israel. He's not supposed to go to Seir. And so as he is speaking, he says, no, uh, why don't you go on ahead and I'll follow behind you? And then Esau says, well, let me leave a few people to help you. And he says, uh, verse 15, but he said, what need is there? Let me find favor. Let me experience grace in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed instead to Sukkot, or Sukkot, probably butchering that as I always do. I'm going to say Sukkoth. (laughs) Because I am not trained in this. So Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. So it sounds like a King James way of saying suck. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like 12 in my brain, and this stuff just, it just comes out. So what you might not know is that Jacob is trying to graciously say, I can't accept And he should have just said that. He should have just said, look, Esau, I know where you're going. And I know where my God is taking me. And this is where we have reunited. But now our our ways need to part. You see, because Jacob had a different destination than Esau. Esau is a worldly man. He is outside of the grace of God. And he's proven this because he won't even accept the grace of God without being prodded. And yet Esau is trying to be gracious. He's a super nice guy. He'll give you the shirt off his back. I mean, if you were going to pick friends, I'd pick Esau. I mean, the guy will literally do anything he can to help you. But Esau's headed to a barren place. If you know anything about East Edom, and if you've ever stood on uh, the the east, excuse me, the western side of the Dead Sea, where Israel is, and you look across the Dead Sea. It's a barren wasteland. As a matter of fact, they used this land to film the movie, is it Mars? With the guy that you know takes it and he does the, and he's lost. I, never mind. But is it, is it called Mars? What's it called? Martian. And, and I can't remember the guy that was in it. Um, Mark Wahlberg. Was it Matt Damon? Same guy. Same guy. Same guy. You guys are all on IMDb right now. But, but my point is, he, he's going to this place that looks like Mars. There's, there's nothing there. There's nowhere to grow anything. There's nowhere to grow sheep. There's nothing for them to eat. And, and it's the land that Esau was actually cursed and sent away to outside of the place of God's blessing. And so to accept to go with him is to stay in the world and away from God's provision of the land of milk and honey. And so to go there would be to accept something that God didn't have for him. And so um, even though he was offered a position there, a place to go, and yet Jacob, instead of just saying, I can't go there, he lies. Because Jacob, even though he has been changed by God and no doubt changed physically and, and humbled spiritually, he's still Jacob. 
He, he's, God's not done with him yet, but he's still a stinking liar. And so rather than just saying, I can't go, he says, uh, well, we can't travel that fast. Well, let me leave a couple people. No, no, I, it, I'm really good. And he, he says, I'll meet you in Seir. Fully decided already that he's not going there. He should have just said it. But in Hebrews, I want to remind you that though Esau looks like a really great guy, the Bible says all else, elsewise, says otherwise about him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. We'll start in verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness or purity without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Esau didn't only fall short, he said, I don't want it. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many will become defiled. Lest there be anyone who is a fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, he served his belly instead of the Lord. Verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. What does it mean to repent? It means to agree with God and turn around and go the other way. To decide that my ways are not okay in God's sight. My righteousness will not fulfill what God requires. And therefore, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. I need to admit that I am outside of God's grace. And so he said he wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There is a repentance that's not actually repentance. Does that make sense? There's, there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, I'm sorry and I'm going to change. Worldly sorrow puts forth a lot of tears and refuses to change. And so that's the difference between Jacob and Esau. So Jacob knew he couldn't go the way of Esau, the way of the world, but he wasn't yet confident to just say that. Uh, You and I have to part ways here. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say that. In chapter um, 5, I'm going to go to verse 12. Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. He says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, but not in heart. For we are beside ourselves. It is, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to their flesh, even though we have known Christ according to his flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is now in Christ, or I would say inside the grace of God through Christ, he is a new creation. The old ways have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so in this new life, Jacob can no longer go with his brother. That's the point I'm trying to make. And by the way, as believers, we shouldn't go the way of the world. D.L. Moody put it this way. Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with the world. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they will sink. And so Jacob is trying to remain separate. So you may or may not be able to read this, and I'm sorry for that. But the little blue line or the blue blob there is the Dead Sea. And the place that Jacob meets his brother Esau is, is right there to the right and up. There's two lines that go from the bottom right up to this place called Peniel, close to the river Jabbok. And that is where Esau met his brother. Jacob was headed due west. He was headed to Israel. He was headed to the land of Canaan. And as he met with God at Peniel, and then he heads west, he arrives at Succoth, and then he is introduced or invited by his brother to go to Seir. Seir is nowhere close to where he's supposed to go. It's very far to the south. And so as Jacob heads west, he arrives there before crossing the Jordan, and he stops in this place called Sukkot. And as he gets there, I couldn't say it one more time. As he gets there, verse 17, says, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. No big deal, right? Except he built a house. He didn't pitch a tent. He built a house. What's the problem? That's how we live, right? Well, not the people of Israel. They were sojourners in the land. His father was a tent dweller. His brother, or excuse me, his, fa- his father's father was a tent dweller. They were pilgrims. They were not at home in the world. And yet Sukkot, where he built his house, is outside of the land of Israel. So he didn't go with Esau, and yet he still was a fence sitter. He was still caught between where he knew he wasn't supposed to go and the place he knew he was supposed to go to in Sukkot. And so while he's there, he we need to remember that God told him to go back to his father's land. And in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, and there in chapter 31, verse 13, he says, I'm going to bring you back into the land, not to its border. So Jacob settles in Sukkot, which means tent city, but he builds a house in tent city. And then he stalls he, he builds stalls for his livestock or booths or some of your Bibles might say tents. And then he does the same in Shechem. But then I want you to notice, he came safely, verse 18, to the city of Shechem, which is in the, which is in the land of Canaan. So he finally arrives. When he came from Padan Aram and he pitched his tent before the city, And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, 
Shechem's father for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And if you remember in chapter 32, verse 9, he used to call God, by the way, the God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. It was always about, well, my, my parents' God. Some of you might have experienced this where you maybe you were raised in church and, and for a time, like you went to church, my kids go to church many times because their dad does. But my prayer for them is that they would eventually go because they, they want to serve the, their God, not my God. That they would become personal followers of Yahweh. And yet what we have here is something that you might almost miss. There's a lot of messes that Jacob's creating here. And actually, when he stays in Shechem, uh, it's going to create some problems for his family. If you've read chapter 34, spoiler alert, uh, his daughter, because of his not going to Bethel, where his family was from, she gets raped by a pagan because he didn't protect them by going where God told them to go. Obedience matters to you and to your family. But here we have this little glimpse of hope because though he's still up to his old tricks in some ways, it says in verse 20, he erected an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. He's making this worship thing personal for him. It's no longer about his parents' God. Now it's about his. And so I want to end on these thoughts. Why does 100% obedience matter in the life of a Christian? Obedience creates resurrection. Disobedience creates rot. Esau was living a rotten life, even though it looked awesome. Jacob's life, by the way, I want to point this out, looks rotten. He's lying to his brother. He's, He's falling short of where God told him to go. He's half-heartedly worshiping God seemingly, and yet it is God's grace that has brought him safe thus far, right? And yet God's grace will lead him all the way home. And so while Esau is obviously a profane man, but has a, an outwardly awesome-looking life, he, he's, he's rotten. He will not experience the resurrection. And yet Jacob, by God's grace, is fumbling through, making mistakes, failing outwardly, and yet God's grace is going to cover it. So he's back in the land. Doesn't that count as obedience? Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience to the Lord is disobedience. Now, he's built an altar to worship. Doesn't that show where his heart is? Yes and and no. But disobedience will put he and his family in danger. And I already alluded to that. But then obeying God's word is better than all the sacrifice. God would prefer that Jacob go to Bethel and not build an altar than that he go halfway home and build an altar and worship. Worship without, without obedience is merely lip service. It's what the world is blaming the church for. Bunch of hypocrites. But God's desire is that we would obey as worship rather than obey half-heartedly and then worship. Our obedience, by the way, is our worship. How we serve God with our whole heart, that's what he's pleased with. 
And so I want to take you to a passage real quick in 1 Samuel in chapter 15. King Saul. King Saul was a, a man that was given the kingship over Israel. And God told him, I want you to go in and I want you to utterly wipe out the Amalekites. And so he goes in. And as he goes in, Samuel had told him, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now he ambushed him on the way when he came back from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty harsh, right? There's reasons for that we don't have to go into today. So Saul gathered the people and numbered them in in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites. And then fast forward, verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Disobedience one. He utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me, and he's not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose up early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he's gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. We've disobeyed the command of the Lord, but we had good reasons which is prideful to say, I think I know better than God, right? But then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. (laughs) My version would be, shut up. Be quiet, Saul, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission, and you said, excuse me, and he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed 
the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so Samuel famously said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Or does he prefer obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And then he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And so the word to us would be, obedience does matter. It's Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And I'm so thankful because of this. I look at the life of Jacob, and I look at the life of Esau, and I look at my own life, and I go, wow, if this is God's righteous standard, which, by the way, all of the Old Testament is pointing to the fact that all of us, even when we're told by God what his righteous requirements are, we can't do it. We fail every time. And yet, Jesus, I look at Jacob's life, I look at Abraham's life, I look at Adam and Eve, I look all the way throughout the Bible, and I'm like, who can fulfill God's righteous standard? And the answer is, Sunday school answer, Jesus. I'm so thankful for Jesus. What would happen if he was only partially obedient? Maybe you think partial obedience, no big deal. But what if Jesus was only partially obedient? Look at John chapter 6 as we close. John chapter 6, verse 38 says this. Jesus speaking says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That I will do all that the Father has given me to do, and because of that, Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God. And of all that believe, they will have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What if he didn't do it all? Perhaps God had a a deal worked out, and that He was partially obedient. And so it wasn't all that would be raised from the dead. How would you feel if you were one of the partial? Of course, I'm going off into the weeds. This is a rhetorical question because Jesus could only obey the will of the Father. But partial obedience in his life might mean that you could trust in a Savior and you wouldn't be a part of the 144,000 or some weird thing like that. You wouldn't be a part of the chosen few. You would be a part of the select few. And 
you wouldn't have any assurance of that because it wouldn't be necessarily everybody. So you'd hope in this thing your whole life that may not actually come to pass. And yet because Jesus, being fully God, being 100% obedient and submissive, I can't get my mind around that. God submitted to himself. But that's what the Bible teaches. He, he humbled himself and did everything God gave him to do, the Father. And because of that, we are the benefactors. We inherit eternal life. And this body that keeps giving up and keeps rotting and we keep holding together with stucco and everything else, it's, it's going to be raised from the dead and it's going to be 100% everything it was ever supposed to be. Even if I fail in this life, that's hope. That's, that's, that's what God's promised. And so this morning as we celebrate the resurrection, we're going to take communion. We're going to have the guys come up. They're going to bring it around and they're going to pass it. If you are inside the grace of God, I want you to feel totally 100% confident, whether you're a member here or not, take communion. But if you would, and you'd be convicted that you might be someone that is... Uh, the person that says, no, I'm good. I got this. I have enough. Then I want to ask you, take this time to repent because you're outside of God's grace and there's no hope for you. But then believe. God, you've promised this thing. You've promised eternal life. If I will hear, know the Son, and believe, and I want to be in that number. I'm, I'm not going to offer up my dead works anymore. I'm not going to offer up my filthy rags. I'm going to believe that what you offer is enough, and I'm going to freely receive it. I'm going to stop trying to earn it by my own good works or my own efforts. And so, Father, as we get ready to take communion this morning, and as we pass around the, the, the juice and the bread that symbolize your body and your blood being the offering that we need, we look back to it and we celebrate. Lord, thank you for your blood and thank you for your body. Your blood poured out so that we can be cleansed 100% obedient. When you look down upon us, when we're under your grace, under your blood, you only see perfect obedience, though practically we know otherwise. And so, Father, um, thank you for the, the bread, the bread of life that sustains us in this world until we go home. We look back and we see what you did. We look at our present and we thank you for the blood and the bread. And we look towards the future, all of your fulfilled promises that we will obtain because we're hoping in your son alone. And so, Father, as we take communion, as we pass out these elements, Lord, help us to remember your grace. Would it be that as we pray even, that we'd be able to remember all of the ways that your grace has covered a multitude of sin. And may we be able to be joyful over that, not condemned anymore, but now set free to say simply, thank you. And so uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. As we take communion, we'll, we're going to